This guy, Lord Acton, you might be familiar with him, um, you might not be, so it's fine if you're not. Uh, he was an aristocrat, lived during the Victorian uh, England times, well known for his beard. No, he wasn't well known for his beard. He, uh, a lot of guys had beards like that, which is pretty impressive. He was actually more famous for being a politician, for being a historian and for being an author. And one of his quotes, most famously insightful quotes, in a letter to a friend, he wrote this. This is, I think, where you might find the familiarity. He wrote, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Right, so you might be more familiar with those words than him. But you, know, you don't really have to look too hard in our world to see the truth of those words. And we've got politicians, business leaders, sports stars, musicians. You know, when, it, when they seem to pursue power they end up often becoming too big for their boots and then things just come crashing down, as Lord Acton predicted. <clears throat> What's interesting, though, is that Lord Acton's quote was, is, is typically applied to political leaders, but he was actually writing about political leaders and religious leaders. This is the full version of his quote. I cannot accept your view that we are to judge Pope and king unlike other men, <clears throat> presuming that they do no wrong. If there is any presumption, it is the other way. Against the holders of power, increasing as the power increases, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And probably if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you'll know we've been tracking through this series called Better and Worse, where we've been looking at how the Christian church is probably way better and probably way worse than you ever imagined. And, and as we've explored over the weeks, when Christians have focused on what Jesus said and did, when Christians are in tune with Jesus, that's when things tend to go really well. But when Christians get distracted or they depart from Jesus' message, that's when things tend to go badly. And I think that the departures from Jesus' message are actually the root cause of the religious violence or the abuses, or the excesses in the church in the last 2,000 years that we've just taken a really quick snapshot look at. And a big part of that is, underneath all that, I guess, is the human desire for power. So when Jesus burst on the scene 2,000 years ago, he upended the established social order. He taught that an attitude of humility was really the glue which holds society together. And so on various occasions, Jesus said things like this, whoever is the least among you is the greatest. Whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of all. Anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. And Jesus reinforced a lot of these teachings uh, on humility with a bunch of teaching stories. We call them parables. And he often celebrated the underdog in those stories. In fact, if you look at the, the main characters in Jesus' stories, they're often people who are on the edge of society. Think of the Good Samaritan, or think of the faithful servants, or think of 
the, um, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the people on the edge, on the fringe. And so in doing that and sharing those stories, Jesus flips the social expectations that it wasn't necessarily the strong or the good-looking or the influential that gained God's favour. It was actually the humble, those who showed humility. And so Jesus hammered this point to his disciples. And on one occasion, uh, it's recorded in Mark chapter 10. If you've got a Bible, I'd love you to to turn there with me as we track through the story and just find how Jesus really emphasised this this whole focus on humility. So Jesus and his followers are, are heading to Jerusalem and no one else knows it except for Jesus that he is actually heading to his death in the city of Jerusalem. So two of his close friends, close followers, called James and John, they they sidle up to Jesus and they ask him a favour. And they say, Jesus, when you usher in this kingdom that you've been promising, when you are ruling on your throne, can we be seated on your left and on your right? And essentially what James and John are asking is they want to be in positions of power. They want to be, uh, be viewed as having authority and respect uh, because they're on Jesus' left and right. But they're thinking in terms of an earthly or, or a political kingdom. And Jesus says this, look, you don't know what you're asking. In fact, you've actually got it totally wrong. This is what he says uh, starting at verse 42. You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man, Jesus himself, came not to be served but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I don't know, James and John, I think they could be forgiven for being a bit confused. I mean, Jesus' teaching was so different to the culture of the first century. So in the Greek and Roman society that these guys were in, that society was built on power and honour. And everyone had a place in that society, and that place was determined by your social status, by your strength, your physical strength, by your wealth, by your intelligence, and by your influence. And if anything in a person's character was considered weak or vulnerable, it was suppressed. Humility was not a virtue that was valued in the ancient world. So let's have a quick look at this video and find out a wee bit more about that. Even in Greece, perhaps the most ethically self-aware of all ancient cultures, humility played no part in the good life. Delphi was seen as the spiritual centre of the world. And the so-called maxims of Delphi were the epitome of Greek moral wisdom. The Delphic maxims are a summary of the good life in pithy form, just two or three words each. Know yourself. Actually, these words were inscribed on the temple behind me. Help your friends. Nothing to excess. Stop yourself killing. That's good advice. Honour good people. Meet out justice. Don't mock the dead. And 
don't let your reputation go. And on it goes for 147 lines. What's especially interesting is what's missing from the maxims. 147 pieces of moral advice and not even a hint of the ethic of humility we're so used to today. In today's world, we value someone who has humility. We don't like arrogance. In the ancient world, that was not the case. Our word humiliation is how they would have heard back then the word humility. The word humility in both the ancient Greek and Latin meant low, as in low to the ground. It had an entirely negative connotation. In a world that loved reputation and honour above pretty much anything else, humility just didn't make sense. So what happened? How did the West come to despise honour-seeking and prize humility? The evidence points firmly in one direction. Jesus of Nazareth. It's true that Jesus taught an ethic of humility. He once said, whoever wants to be great must be your servant. But it probably wasn't his teaching that changed things decisively. It was his death. It's difficult today to grasp just how much of a catastrophe Jesus' crucifixion was to those who loved him. To hear that a Messiah, a great king, uh, a, an important person was crucified, well, it would be nonsense to the Greek or the Roman ear. They couldn't make sense of it. In fact, Roman citizens were not crucified for that very reason. It was just so shameful. So for the gospel message to proclaim a crucified Lord, it, it upended the value system that the Romans held. The shameful death of Jesus posed a difficult question for his first followers. Was he not as great as they thought, given the nature of his execution? Or does greatness itself have to be redefined to include a willingness to lower yourself for the sake of others? For Christians, the answer was obvious. Greatness involves humility. So as you heard on that video, it was actually after his death and his resurrection that the first Christians realised that Jesus' teachings were true, that true greatness involved humility and sacrifice, and real power involved humbling oneself. And so that's why the leading Christians, uh, Paul, Peter and James, they wrote letters and they encouraged those early Christians and the churches to follow the teachings of Jesus and to live a life of humility. For example, this is what um, ah, sorry, this is what uh, Paul writes to the Greek Christians of uh, the Christians living in the Greek city of Philippi. He writes, "Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had." Or Peter, he wrote to the Christians living in modern-day Turkey. Dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and at the right time he will lift you up in honour. Or James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote to Christians scattered around the Mediterranean. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honourable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. And so those first Christians, they, they followed that advice. They lived out the teachings 
of Jesus across their towns and their cities, and it had, it had a transformative effect. So Greek and Roman organisations at the time tended to be the same kinds of people. But scholars have noted that the Christian church was radically different. Christians were an eclectic mix of people of all ages and stages. So, for example, in his letter to the Christians in Rome, Paul sends his greetings to people from every level of the social ladder. The poor and the destitute, the middle class and the elite, people right across the board. Perhaps that's what he had in mind when he wrote to the church in Galatia when he said there is no longer Jew or Gentile, non-Jew, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so this, the early church was this very diverse group, something that's been replicated for the last 2,000 years. I mean, just have a sneaky look around you know, at us. We're an eclectic bunch of people. But you need to know that the early church wasn't perfect, but part of the reason that they mostly got on with each other was that they followed the example of Jesus. They had an attitude of humility toward one another. And so for the first few centuries, that's kind of how the early church operated. But then there was two pivotal events which occurred, which, which brought a major a disruption and a distraction to the Christian church. The first one was around 300 years after Jesus, the start of the 4th century, when the Roman emperor at the time, a guy called Constantine, declared that he was a Christian and he legalised Christianity. So literally overnight the Christian church went from being persecuted to being powerful and privileged. Pagan temples were converted to churches and Christian leaders suddenly gained a whole, a whole level of prestige which they never had previously had. And so because Christianity was legal, there was suddenly an influx of people who wanted to become Christians. And a lot of these new converts were, were less concerned about following Jesus' teachings and more motivated by some of the privileges and the power that the church had suddenly gained. The second significant event was in the year 800 when Pope Leo III crowned the French warrior Charlemagne as king of the Holy Roman Empire, which is most of Western Europe as we know it today. Now, you might think big deal. I can actually tell that on your faces. But it was a really big deal at the time because it was the first instant in the West where a political ruler was crowned by a spiritual leader. And so when Leo placed the crown on Charlemagne's head, it kick-started a trend where spiritual leaders became more and more involved in the political affairs and the trappings of power. And so from that time on, especially during the medieval period of history, the Christian church had a very checkered relationship with power. When the Christian church followed the example of Jesus, when Christians had an attitude of humility and when they gave up their power for the benefit of others, things went well. But when Christians pursued power for their own benefit, things, things got really, really messy. And perhaps you're aware if you flip through the pages of history, things like the lifestyle of some of the medieval popes or, or the Crusades, which we've discussed, or the Spanish Inquisition or the witch trials in, in Britain or even uh, in more recent times the restrictions of black civil rights in Southern America. All of those are examples, terrible examples, of when the Christian church has pursued power 
and ignored Jesus' attitude of humility. But perhaps one of the most shocking and and tragic examples of when the Christian church has pursued power happened in the last 100 years. In the 1930s, most of the Christian churches in Germany aligned themselves with, with Adolf Hitler and the Nationalist Socialist Party or the Nazis. So I'm going to show you a little clip about what that looked like. These are the Zeppelin fields in Nuremberg. Between 1933 and 1938, the Nazi party held six enormous rallies here, drumming up mass hysteria with their promise to restore German pride. This was where Adolf Hitler proclaimed his vision for the Third Reich. And what was the Christian church doing in response to the unfolding madness? Shamefully, not much. Both Catholic and Protestant leaders played into the hands of the Nazis. In fact, many were enthusiastic supporters, literally waving the flag. The story of the church under Nazism is one of comprehensive failure. Church leaders clearly wanted a place at the table in Hitler's Germany, and they fell over themselves trying to align their faith with the party program. In the words of one prominent German pastor, Christ has come to us through Adolf Hitler. We have only one task, to be German, not to be Christian. It says it all, really. The German church's complicity with Nazism is just one glaring example of what happens when the church cozies up to power at the cost of its core beliefs. Now, you you need to know that not every German Christian cozied up to the Nazis. But, before I tell you a wee bit about that, I guess I just want to ask you a question, and the question is, what would you choose? I mean, if you were living at that time, would you have sucked up to power like so many German Christians did, or would you have stood up for the truth of Jesus? I mean, that's a really tough question. I wonder if we would only know our answer in the moment we had to respond to that. But it's not an abstract or a you know, historical what-if question. I mean, Christians in Russia are in a similar position at the moment. Christians in China are also wrestling with the tension between the state church and the underground church. So it's, it's certainly not an abstract question. And for Christians living in Germany in the 1930s, the question was as real as it, as it gets. I mean, their life literally hinged on their answer. And so in opposition to the Nazi regime, a group of German Christians formed what's known as the Confessing Church. And one of the most influential voices in that movement was a man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Has anybody heard of him? Awesome. So he was was an unlikely critic of the Nazis. He was an unassuming, 
church pastor and theologian, born into an educated and quite a wealthy family. He completed studies in Berlin and then also in America. He was quite geeky, quite, I, I suppose, bookish. But he also had a strong sense of social justice. And for Bonhoeffer, Christian virtues were more than just intellectual or philosophical ideas. They had to be worked out in the realities of everyday life. And so Bonhoeffer's faith was, was severely tested when the Nazis came to power in 1933. And Bonhoeffer had this innate awareness that the Nazis were misleading the German public, that what they were saying was not their real intent. And so two days after Hitler was uh, made Chancellor of Germany, Bonhoeffer made a speech which was broadcast on the radio and he denounced Hitler as the saviour of Germany which was certainly the the popular feeling at the time. And Bonhoeffer reminded his listeners that true leadership was about servant leadership, that a real leader was humble, that a real leader would use their power for the benefit of another. He actually captured this idea uh, a few years later in one of his writings. He wrote this, The Christian church is the church only when it exists for others. Now you can imagine this did not go down well with the Nazis. So Bonhoeffer was put on a blacklist by the Gestapo, which was the Nazi secret police. But you know, those Nazis, those threats did not stop Bonhoeffer. In fact, he rolled up his sleeves and he, he believed that his Christian faith should be personal, but not private. And so he started to put into practice a lot of his Christian ideas to live out his faith every day. He set up a, a secret underground Bible college to train Christian leaders he wrote books and articles about what, what it meant to live as a true disciple of Jesus and the cost and the commitment that was required. And he worked to protect ethnic minorities that the Nazis were trying to oppress. And so when World War II erupted, Bonhoeffer actually became a, a secret agent working against the Nazis and he was involved in an assassination attempt on Hitler's life. It was actually his efforts to rescue Jews which brought him to the attention of the Gestapo. And Bonhoeffer was arrested and imprisoned for two years. And then this happened. On the 5th of April 1943, Bonhoeffer was arrested and later connected with the conspirators who tried to assassinate Hitler. He ended up here at Flossenburg concentration camp near Germany's border with Czechoslovakia. Bonhoeffer wrote, when Jesus calls us, he bids us to come and die. Sacrifice, service, affinity with the victims, courage, and above all, humility. This was Bonhoeffer's faith. He clearly believed that there's eternal significance to all that we do. And that belief shaped his responses to the chaos around him. As Nazi Germany was crumbling, and just three weeks before Hitler put a bullet in his own brain, Bonhoeffer was condemned to death. At dawn on April 9th, 1945, he was led out here to where the gallows stood and hanged along with his fellow conspirators. His last reported words were, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. We are left to wonder what might have happened in Germany if more of those who claimed to follow a crucified Messiah had risked their lives to stand up to power.
Bonhoeffer was a, an inspirational example of someone who stood up against the abuse of power. And Bonhoeffer followed Jesus' teaching that real leadership involves service, that true power should be used through humility for the benefit of others. Now, we may never be in a situation that Bonhoeffer was in, but all of us have power. You might be at work, you might be a manager, you might be the boss, you might be an influential employee, you might be at school, you might be a teacher, or a senior student, a leader among your group of friends. It might be at home. Might be the husband, a wife, parent, a grandparent. You might have power in the community with the social groups that you've involved. It might even be here at ABC. You're a service team leader, or a home group leader, or a ministry team leader. But all of us have power, whether we realise it or not. And all of us have a choice about how to use that power. We use it in an attitude to to serve and support others, or we seek ourselves. Or we use and abuse power for our own ends. I, I don't know what circumstances and situations all of you are facing, but I do know that you have a choice about how you use your power for others, whether it's kids, colleagues, in-laws, neighbours, friends, whoever. I guess the question that all of us need to consider is, what will you choose? You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. God, you are the all-powerful, all-knowing and all-loving God. And we simply come here this morning to humble ourselves before you, to acknowledge your goodness and your grace in our lives. As we've looked over the last few weeks at some of the highs and the lows in, in Christian history, we've been inspired by those who have lived their lives in tune with Jesus. And may we be those people who do that. May we follow the message of Jesus and share his gospel message through our lives. We just ask simply today, this week, this month, that we would choose to use our power for others. That through your Holy Spirit you'd equip us to be the church, to selflessly serve others for your name's sake and your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining us this morning at church. Nice and simple this morning. Uh, we're not actually having uh, morning tea or anything, refreshments, etc. Still got a prayer team over here in the corner, but you're welcome to stick around and chit-chat and catch up. Or you could take someone to a cafe for a coffee if you want a proper coffee. But yeah, we just um, really hope you have a great week, a positive week where you're in tune with Jesus. And if you've got any issues or questions or problems, feel free to get in touch. But God bless you heaps.